Looking good. All right. Okay, hello, willkommen, bienvenue, konnichiwa. Uh, welcome to the Armist Inquisition, episode 275 on Sunday the 2nd of April, 2023. I'm Phil. I'm Matt. Uh, Ben's not here tonight. No. He's uh, accident and emergency. He is, again. Dealing with a child with a broken arm. Yes. Which is all you need on a Sunday. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but never fear, we're uh, glad uh, to be joined tonight by David Greenberg. How are you doing, David? Hey guys, Phil, Matt, it's really great to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, I'll just mention before we started streaming that um, the subject of natural law and the anarchist movement uh, is a subject we've touched on very briefly, occasionally, once or twice, without going into any depth whatsoever. And I don't think it's something either of us really understand. Uh, no, and I can't even remember it being touched upon in, <laughs> in, in the podcast, so... <laughs> Um, this is all new to me, yes. Right, well, I thought, well, I, I was I was uh, eager to get you on, David, and just to give you an idea, in the in the UK, I don't think this is uh, on the radar as much as it is in the US. Now, I don't know whether that's a cultural thing with Western Europe and the Scandinavian countries. I think we'd, we tend to be more socialist. We have a more socialist milieu with socialised healthcare and schools mm. and all the rest healthcare. of it. And uh, there isn't the same sort of uh, movement or public consciousness of natural law as there seems to be, the impression that I get, that there is in the States. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to this. I mean, I suppose a good starting point is is the actual term itself, natural law. I mean, do you have sort of a, a sort of simple uh, breakdown of what the term means and uh, the, the philosophy? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And uh, I also wanted to mention just before that, don't feel bad if you just have come across this because I didn't know about this for most of my life either. And there are actually reasons why that is so. I mean, this this is considered by those who recognize it, who, who have studied it, it's considered to be some of the most deeply occulted knowledge on planet Earth. So it's not a surprise if the vast majority of people in any country haven't haven't come across it. Of course, my part of my work and part of the work of people who are trying to get the word out is to change that. Uh, but we also have to be realistic and understand you know, why things are the way they are, why, why it's not very well known, um, and then basically start from there. So uh, maybe a really simple way to think about natural law in terms of common sense, street sense, is uh, the only... I can only rightly do things with your consent. You know, I can only use your property, uh, do things with you if you agree to them. I can't force anything upon you morally and rightly. And if I do, there are going to be consequences. And the consequences aren't just because, hey, I get caught or something. There's actually built into reality. There are uh, spiritual laws that are going to guide outcomes so that we actually learn that very important and very simple lesson. That's what natural law is. It's just... You know, the difference between right and wrong is built into reality, and when we do the wrong thing, then we're going to get consequences. But don't you see lots of people who who seem to be doing the wrong thing all the time and get away with it? Sure, sure. And what happens is uh, there's kind of this, I think, overly simplistic way of thinking about the way this works, that it's just... You know, if you do something bad, a, a piano is going to fall on your head. Like if you, if you murder someone, a piano is going to fall on your head immediately, and you know God's going to strike you down. And that's 
that's not the way it works. And I think that's also by design because we live in this reality together. So really the consequences we reap and sow are, are collective. So we, we kind of all get to benefit from the, the good outcomes if we do, if we follow the rules. And if we don't, we get to all suffer together, uh, even if certain individuals apparently get away with it. So, right. um, so yeah, so- I mean, this is a common argument. So John Lennon was wrong. Instant karma isn't going to get you. No. There is no instant karma. Well, it might. It might. It might. I mean, but it's, I don't think it's really the, the common case. I think the common case is we all suffer together or we all flourish together. Yes. I guess, um, I mean, you mentioned in your, in your bio about having a spiritual, a spiritual awakening. And I guess maybe that's a component of people acting probably how you would describe as immorally, is they don't see a spiritual consequence to their actions. Yeah, I, I think what I've come to understand is that when people think, you know, act immorally and just think there's nothing wrong with it, uh, either they're a psychopath and they're in, completely incapable of uh, having that holistic understanding of the difference between right and wrong, or they've been under mind control and they've just literally been mind controlled to actually think something that they know is not true. And it's very deep within them, that knowing, but um, it's been covered up by all these layers of nonsense and BS. So, uh, but I think with the exception of people who are born psychopaths, we all have that capability of knowing that it's wrong to take things that don't belong to us. And, you know, we don't really need to make a big deal out of it. But um, the whole society that we've grown up in, all of us, whatever country we're in, has largely been built on immorality and coercion. So in other words, we get to tell people what to do. Uh, government allow, is allowed to punish people for doing for not following their uh, often arbitrary and ridiculous rules, and they can use any kind of violence, and that's considered actually moral, which is the complete opposite of what's actually true. So, David, do you think the concept of right and wrong is something that we're, that we're born with? Because I, I don't know what sort of psychological thoughts would be on this like from a sort of psychological perspective whether it's nature versus nurture whether it's something that's taught i mean i remember hearing as a kid that you you know your parents had to teach you the difference between right and wrong but are, are we saying that that no there's there's some sort of natural inherent morality that we all understand without having to be taught yeah well thinking about myself when i was a kid i do remember even when i was doing things that now I know were wrong. I, I, I remember always having a feeling like, you know, deep down inside, this is not right. Um, I think there is a, I think the answer is it's both. It's, there's an inherent component. In other words, there's an innate common sense and intuition. Um, and then there is a reinforced component that is done through education. So part of the role of parents actually is, one of the main roles of parents is to reinforce that inner knowing. So it's not to impart upon the child this knowing because the child already has that naturally. Again, they're a psychopath and they're incapable of experiencing the emotions related to morality. But uh, for 99% of the people, uh, the parent's role would really be to reinforce that through lessons, through teachings, through feedback, uh, through some kind of parental guidance to just keep reinforcing that natural knowing so that it flourishes, so that it just becomes you know, holistic. So it becomes both that inner knowing, but also just the practiced way of, of that child growing up in the world. So it's, you know, like a lot of things, it's not just one or the other. It's, some, it's a blend of both of them. And right. And how, what about, 
when you do do things wrong, because we all make mistakes and we all do things that we regret the next day or we say something we regret or act out at our kids when our kids are winding us up, something like that. How does how does that fit in with like this sort of concept? Because there's this, there's uh, often a temptation if you're uh, a fairly introspective person to kind of beat yourself up over mistakes that you sure. make when you sort of analyse. If you type of person who analyzes your own behavior to sort of uh, bludgeon yourself with your own wrong your own misdeeds and your own wrongdoings from maybe 20 years ago even yeah so i think um i think uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of truth to that people can be very hard on themselves i know i have been um it's important to, on the one hand, recognize that we can't change the past, so we have to accept if, some, if we did something or if something has happened, we have to accept the truth that that is the truth. But I think the, the mark of really being able to grow is to learn from our mistakes, no matter what they are. So whatever wrong we committed, if we can just look at it and say, yes, I was wrong, three very powerful words. I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. I now know that. I recognize that. Moving forward, I'm going to make my best effort to not do that ever again in my life. I'm going to make an effort to be, a, to be an even better person and you know, just take that in stride, take that as a lesson. I think if we can take that more higher, higher ground view and we can kind of, you know, we might not be able to completely get out of feeling bad about it. Uh, again, that might be natural because we need to feel something and there needs to be a consequence. But uh, so that we don't just wallow in depression, if we can just learn the lesson grow from that to keep moving forward, then I think that is the best outcome that anybody can make of any wrongdoing. One of my favorite sayings is, um, a fool learns from his mistakes, a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. So it prevent you doing these sort of things. And while we're talking about mistakes, uh, from the perspective of natural law, is there a, a compulsion to sort of make amends? You know, if you're a follower of the philosophy of natural law and you do make a mistake, is there, you know, something uh, pushing to, to, to sort of try and right that wrong or pay something else forward in another way? Yes, I think so. First and foremost, it would be with yourself because you can only, you know, one of the things we recognize as students of natural law is we, we can only control ourselves. We only have the right to control ourselves, our own mind, our own actions. So get right with yourself first. You know, that's the most important thing. Uh, we can't force forgiveness on anyone else. That would not be true forgiveness. But we can certainly go and do what is prudent, what is called for to try to rectify it. You know, if we harm someone else and there's a chance to uh, offer to do something to compensate, then we should at least make the offer, recognize that it may or may not be received and we can't control that. But if we can at least make the offer, even if it's a little bit difficult to do that, then that's going to go a long way. And chances are, if it's made out of sincerity, in many cases, it will be accepted. And that can, you know, while it can't change the past again, it can at least you know, bring back balance. You know, that's what justice is bringing back that balance. So by, you know, compensating in some way, even if it's something very small, even if it's just, you know, apologizing and saying to the other person, I know I was wrong because I did this, because I know it's wrong. Here's why. I recognize this and I commit to never doing that again. You know, even if they're not going to offer something in return, um, that may be enough in some cases when done sincerely. And that's already you know, much more powerful, something that unfortunately not a lot of people are doing. 
No, it's very difficult to say sorry, mm. isn't it? We, yeah. I mean, we all have personal lives, families, and wives, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's easy to make mistakes and say the wrong thing. And uh, it's something you said earlier, admitting when you're wrong as well. That's something we really have trouble with because we get so uh, wrapped up in our own beliefs and our own ideas. And uh, yeah, well, it goes back to that. It's, it's, it's uh, what is it easier to? convince someone they've been fooled it's easy to easier to how fool many... someone than convince them they've been fooled yeah how many old wives <laughs> quotations i don't know i'm just going from one to the next if you <laughs> fool me once <laughs> yeah that's george w isn't it yeah it is yeah, yeah. now watch this drive yeah i think yeah. there is something though about saying sorry that's something that my wife says that i'm terrible at doing um but that i think that's just because i'm right all the time <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, you're right. So I, I don't know. I think there is something about growing as part of admitting that you're wrong. Certainly within sort of like, well, any time, I guess, but, um, certainly within your personal relationships and your close relationships. So if you admit that you're wrong when you've done something wrong, would you say that then that kind of readdresses this spiritual balance? Yes, I would say that's already half of the battle. Because half of the battle, you know, is admitting that you're wrong. I, you know, just again, to make it personal in terms of my own life, as I was going through this experience of learning natural law and just being exposed to deeper level, higher level consciousness, if you want to call it that, I, of course, went through my own dark night of the soul. I went through my own period of recognizing all the shitty things that I had done in my own life, all the, the ways that I had acted and still remembering still unfolding that and uh, yeah it can be very hard and, and I think part of it is our the ego the part of us and I, I can see looking back at my behavior in the past I can see how this played out but my ego or the ego of anyone is uh, hates to be wrong the ego hates absolutes hates judgment um, it it will do whatever it can to protect and defend the the individual um, and it's probably by design that way but we are not just our ego. Our ego is just a part of us. So mm. it's okay for the ego to be protective of us, but we can't let the ego, you know, it's not appropriate to let the ego run the show. So there is a point where the higher self or the higher level, the higher consciousness uh, of an individual is going to step in and say, okay, okay, ego, I know you want to run the show here, but we've got to, we've got to admit, you know, what we've done. We've got to take responsibility because that's the part of that I think we have that's the uh, precursor even to admitting I was wrong is to take full responsibility in the first place. And, you know, we're not there yet. And this is another aspect of natural law that people struggle with or, or objective morality is the first principle, even before not causing harm, which is you are sovereign, meaning you are responsible for yourself. Everything that happens to you in your life, everything you do, the consequences of all your actions, you can't delegate that responsibility to anyone else. Either. You are inherently responsible for everything do, um, even if you didn't have all the information. So the, you just need to do the best that you can, which means you continually, you know, we need to continually educate ourselves. Um, and we need to go through a process of self-introspection. I don't think it needs to be feeding ourselves daily, every moment of the day. I don't think, I don't believe in extremes. I don't believe that we should be suffering all the time, but there needs to be some kind of uh, basically uh, supervision uh, and some, you know, even if we have to practice and I think if young children were taught in a, if, we, if young children, if we're kind of 
nurtured in a way that we can't admit we're wrong, you know, in a way that allows us to overcome that and see the good that goes beyond that admission, then we'd probably become more practiced than that. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't be so much of a struggle as we go to adult. You mentioned uh, about having a spiritual awakening. And this is something that interests me because we do live in a very materialistic uh, society, a very utilitarian sort of outlook in the way we organize our lives and religion or spirituality, however you would describe it, has been on the decline probably since the Enlightenment, really. Um, and so I'm very interested in, in cause you, what triggers this change in people sometimes in later life. Could you tell us a bit about what sort of triggered your spiritual awakening? Yeah, I think it, it really boiled down to wreaking the consequences of the actions that I was sowing and having that catch up to me to one degree or another. So again, going back to that analogy that karma is not like a piano falling on your head, but yes, something is going to happen in your life in the long in the long view. And I would say going back to even these characters who seem to be able to get away with a lot, you know, there will be ultimately a price to pay, whether it happens later in their life or even after their life or another lifetime, you know, we're not to say that. But for me personally, what I saw is the consequence of my choices started to catch up to me. They started to catch up to me in terms of my health. They started to catch up to me in terms of my finances. They started to catch up to me in terms of my uh, mental acuity, my well-being, and just almost every dimension, my relationships, relationships with friends, romantic, family relationship, relationship with myself. So as more and more consequences, we can call them negative consequences or suffering, if you want to keep it simple. So as I started to suffer more and more, this pressure of suffering, I think, was only going to lead me to one of two places. It was either going to lead me to oblivion, you know, where literally I was going to get crushed under the weight of all the suffering, or it was going to lead me to raise up my hands and say, stop, I get it. I can't, I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm going to, you know, I need to take a look. I'm going to do what it takes to understand why I'm suffering. I'm going to take a step back here and try to understand things. And of course, reality always gives clues that there's more going on here than just the material world. Like we get clues all the time through synchronicities and other things, but you know, we may or may not notice them depending on where we are in life. And I think I did a good job of noticing them. I also uh, took a few psychedelic or entheogenic drugs over a, a certain period of time, mostly about 10 years ago. And I think that also helped accelerate my awakening, um, as well as being exposed to certain messages, certain art, you know, films and art that had a message or things that happened in my own life. So it, it's, I don't think it's ever just one thing, but I would say that suffering, if there was one thing that made the biggest difference for me, it, and maybe perhaps for many people, it would be the suffering that they bring upon themselves through the consequences, the long view consequences of their actions. It's amazing how suffering, as we're putting it, can often is the catalyst for some sort of awakening like this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it just makes you think, I'm trying to think of people who who haven't suffered and then had like a, a born-again moment or... or but I found it interesting. You, you sort of said there was there was either two directions. It's either nihilism, or it's a, a spiritual awakening. It's such a gosh. It's such a a cliff edge, that isn't it? Psychologically, to be in that position where 
you've got two choices. It's oblivion or spiritual awakening. It's such a stark contrast, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And there may be, you know, again, I, I don't remember specifically, but what seems to happen is after we live our life and maybe in, in between lives, we have a different view of things and things that we may be crushed into oblivion, you know, spiritually in a lifetime, but we may still have a chance to learn that lesson. I think ultimately, you know, the soul, the part of us that lives beyond this life, you know, is not going to be crushed, uh, but it can be seriously degraded based on our experiences in life. And so we're either going to get it or not. You know, there are lessons to be learned. And sometimes they're very basic lessons, like just respecting other people, respecting, you know, the individual versus the external, that you know, I, the I versus the other. Um, and then, of course, not causing harm, um, respecting free will and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of lessons that one can learn as a soul incarnated in, a, in this lifetime or in any lifetime. Um, but I think in a given lifetime, if so, someone can really go down a dark path, it can really, their soul can really be crushed just by continually choosing, maybe even consciously choosing that dark path. And they'll just go down and, you know, down that path. And, you know, I'm not sure what happens after that, but, um, I think the vast majority of people with enough suffering would probably cry uncle, meaning they would say, okay, I get it. You know, it's time for me to take a, uh, another look at this. So, you know, re that's what the word respect means. Is look again. I'm going to take another look. I'm going to respect myself. I'm going to try to figure this out. Um, I'm open to, you know, considering something that I haven't considered until now. You mentioned uh, shadow work a little bit earlier, and someone was talking about it in the chat just before. Um, this is a, a new concept to me as well. But is this is this based on Carl Jung's interpretation? Your understanding of shadow working. I think I have somewhat of a holistic uh, view that does, yeah, it does draw upon that as well. In my understanding of shadow work, um, and I can explain it as I've done it, is really you're actually sitting down with yourself consciously and intentionally, and you're taking a good hard look at yourself and your behaviors, specifically your behaviors, but then, of course, the precursor is looking at your thoughts and feelings that led to those behaviors or your responses to those thoughts and feelings that led to those behaviors and what your motivations were. And you're not letting yourself off the hook. In other words, you know, if you have done bad things objectively, you have behaved in an objectively wrong way, as per what we're talking about, then you don't let yourself off the hook. You, you try to understand, you keep asking better questions. You know, why did I do that? Why did I behave that way? What, what motivated me to do that? Why, am, why do I continue behaving? You know, why do I always lash out at people under certain circumstances? Um, and so on and so forth. Why do I throw away my romantic partner after always after six months, discard them like a, like an old rag, you know, just to use an example. So we don't let ourselves off the hook. We actually try to get in there and figure out, um, we, we don't run away from it. And we call it shadow work because it is the shadow self. It is the darker aspect of ourselves. It is the deep recesses of our psyche. The things that we normally would want to, you know, most people would probably want to keep it. They would be afraid to face that part of themselves, the part that, there's even a part of us that can, you know, we all have the capacity to do things that we haven't even done. Like we, we all have the capacity to murder someone, even if we don't always act on it. So, you know, shadow work is about not being afraid to face that aspect of ourselves that is capable even of doing dark, even darker things that we've done and really working on that part and integrating, trying to come up with a way not to try to 
uh, eliminate it, because that would be a misunderstanding of this work, because the light and the darkness, the duality, you know, this is the way things are in this reality, is that, that there's a duality. So we're always going to have the light and the darkness, and the darkness is the contrast. So, you know, without darkness, we can't distinguish the light. So shadow work is not about trying to annihilate aspects of your, of your psyche or your consciousness or your analysis. Of your psyche, sorry, of your psyche, your consciousness about recognizing them, integrating them, and transmuting them into something else, so that your outwardly manifesting behaviors will change accordingly. Right? You might still be an edgy person. You might still be, you know, you're not going to suddenly become love and light. That's not the goal either. I think you go to one extreme, but you're going to have everything more in balance. You're going to be much more of a balanced being because you're really taking a good look at yourself and, uh, you know, designing yourself consciously. Yeah, um, the subconscious. I'm just thinking about this book. That book you you lent me, the Carl Jung one, mm. the uh, <clears throat> archetypes. It is, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of talk about the subconscious. Well, it's all about the subconscious, mm. and it makes you wonder how how sort of malleable it is. You know, through conscious work, if you can really affect your subconscious in in a meaningful way, do you think that's actually possible? Yes, yeah, it is. That's why we see people can be hypnotized and are hypnotized. That's, you know, a lot of the mainstream society is built on hypnotism through television and other means. So, you know, people are, we, one of the, I'm actually going to be doing a presentation coming up called Understanding Human Nature. And one of the five aspects of human nature that I'm going to talk about is going to be um, the fact that we are very programmable. So, um, and I think that programmability comes the relationship between our conscious and subconscious. So the conscious mind is kind of like the guard or the gatekeeper, the aware one, the one who's keeping an eye on everything. Um, but there is a deeper level to our consciousness that can be that can be implemented, that understands through symbolism and can be programmed. And if there isn't a conscious oversight or if the conscious part of us allows something through that says, here, go ahead, we're going to accept that, or it doesn't create a filter, then yes, we could be programmed in any number of ways. We can pro be programmed uh, really to have almost any, to act or to believe in almost any way that one can imagine. Um, so it is that consciousness that we bring, you know, as kind of the, the, the oversight or the sovereign. That's where the so self-sovereignty comes in, because the sovereign aspect of our consciousness is, is the one who's keeping an eye on everything and, and you know, making conscious choices about what we want to allow into, into our programming into our subconscious yeah and then deprogramming what you've sort of taught yeah. your subconscious already that's what i'm finding intriguing about the carl jung book because he suggests that a lot of the archetypes are inherent well that's his, in your subconscious yeah um, subconscious. That's, that's his idea is this essentially it's there isn't it in your biology and in your makeup essentially um but it, you know i suppose the unconscious is you kind of think of it as a little bit of a mystery um, but there is something called, you know, a, a simple way of, or a more simple way of thinking about it is sort of like a difference between explicit and implicit memory. So like a, an, an, an implicit, I'm probably going to get this the wrong way around, memory. So for example, so when you're learning to drive, um, it's quite explicit to begin with. It's very effortful, you know, so you have to yeah. sort of think about when you're changing the gears and all the rest of it. And then you, you stall and everything's like, you're overwhelmed basically. But now that you can just drive, essentially, um, and that because the actual learning 
has gone into your mind and has become it's unconscious, it's unconscious behavior. It comes like a program. Yeah, essentially, and it runs in the background. So yeah. you're conscious, you're not consciously aware. And but the thing is, is if uh, a child steps out in front of you, your conscious mind takes over again. Wow, that's amazing. Because yeah. I'm sure we've all had that, that experience where you've driven somewhere and stopped the car and thought, <laughs> what? How did I even get here? You remember nothing from the journey because you've just, you're almost like an autopilot. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Your, brain, your brain's that clever. But that, that's, just a, that's just a really simple <laughs> the, example analogy. of how people, you know, could perhaps relate to the unconscious. But if that, you know, that's just one example, but you will have an unconscious template for how you manage relationships, you know, like you were talking before, you know, ending a relationship after six months, there's probably something in the background running about that that you're not even thinking about necessarily until you start to focus on it, maybe, and ask those questions. Right. So, David, do you think we have, you know, as a mass society, we have subconscious programs running that sort of dictate a lot of our automatic behaviours, the way we uh, sort of react, the way we operate in the world, the way we treat other people, our working environments? Do you think the subconscious is having a huge effect on the way the majority of us out there operate? Definitively, Yes. I can't say exactly what percentage it is, but you know, people like Dr. Joe Dispenza and others who have spoken in, about this and done research, some of them claim that it could be upwards of 80 or 90% or more of our daily thoughts are automatic or semi-automatic. And I think, again, we think about social engineering and the way society has been created, these occultists, these uh, you know, ancient psychologists who understand how this all works, they are actually weaponizing this against us. So they know that because, eight, let's say, 80% of our behaviors are automatic and learned, they know that they can program all this junk, junk ways of behaving into us and, you know, ways that will suddenly, that will, over time, after many years of programming, just become who we are, they become an aspect of us, then they've got us. They've got us, you know, they can get us pretty much to act and behave any way they want. They can get us to literally destroy each other and, uh, you know, potentially even destroy our, ourselves as a species, you know, through through our actions. So, yeah, we're we're you know, as, as you start to dive into this more, you pay more attention not only to yourself but also the way other people talk in, in conversations. And I, I can tell you, when I'm having conversations with most people, the number of automated programs that I hear coming up about such and such a concept, you know, especially with respect to authority, government and authority, this is the number one thing that. I notice in people because I pay a lot of attention to this. Um, it's kind of my focus within the natural law realm, this notion that people have a right, do not have a right to rule over other people. And so I notice people say these things almost automatically. It probably is automatic. They just, it becomes second nature for them. And that's because they've been conditioned to think a certain way. And that conditioning literally informs even their, what you would think would be their conscious conversation. You know, when having a conversation, you would think having a conversation with someone that they're actually consciously choosing their thoughts, carefully choosing and curating their ideas as they share them with you in that conversation. You would think that. But I think, unfortunately, from my experience, that is not the case in the vast majority of cases. People are actually running on autopilot, like that great analogy of driving the car, which is a really great analogy, very relatable, because almost everybody's learned how to drive. So... Um, I think that's a great analogy of what happens. And then when, when the child 
pulls in front of the road, that's when that suffering and that crisis happens as a consequence of our choices that finally catches up to us. That's that oh shit moment where we, now we do have to actually face the consequences of these learned behaviors or these learned thinking patterns that turn into behaviors. And now we can no longer run away from that. And that's, that's the, uh, that's, that's where the uh, shit hits the fan, I guess you could say. Um, and it just doesn't happen necessarily every minute. You know, even if we're driving badly, we could probably get away with driving badly for a while before we, we're going to finally hit something. Right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about um, authority and people's um, re- either reluctance, reticence, or or whatever the the sort of uh, unable to question the sort of the role that the state should play. And it, I mean, are you sort of of the view that? governments should be abolished that we don't need them well yes that would be ideal it's it's not just my personal view i should mention again there it's objectively true that that no one has a right to actually rule over anyone else and enforce right. that rule through violence that's just that's just you know very very simple truth um however most many people in the world and most people myself included have either thought that or continue to think that you know again we can talk about that at, at length. Um, as far as how it all play out, you know, abolishing government versus, uh, you know, how would we get out? How do we extricate ourselves out of the situation? Um, I'm not, I'm not a, a, someone who has a very simplistic way of looking at things that I, I propose to know how it's going to play out. All I'm suggesting at this point is that we need to recognize the truth and start to act accordingly in our individual lives and start to implement that, you know, whether that means governments will all disappear within six months or a year, I can't. I can't answer what's going to actually happen as a result of that. I'm not saying we should. I'm not saying we should protest them either. All I'm saying is that, you know, the first the first thing is to internally know that it's objectively true that you don't have a right to rule over me. I don't have a right to rule over you. The only thing, the only kind of interactions that we can have with each other is what we voluntarily agree to, which could be nothing. Could be just leaving each other in peace. It could be, for example, like we're doing today, where we agree to have a conversation, or it could be some kind of trade, some kind of interaction, some kind of work together. Those are all moral and right, um, and we could solve any problems as a society, um, you know, including the ones that, for example, people who have a socialist view, for example, if you want to take that, who believe in more equity. I mean, there is a voluntary way to implement uh, that kind of society, and it doesn't involve violence and coercion. It wouldn't be called necessarily socialism, but it would maybe look more like that than what we have now. Um, so I don't propose to know how this is all going to play out. All I know is that my role is to speak to you and each individual I come across and remind them of the truth that you don't have a right to rule over me. I don't have a right to rule over you. And that person over there claiming to be an authority doesn't have a right to do what they're doing. The only reason they're able to get away with it is because you and I sometimes in my life and others continue to believe in their illusion of authority. We believe that they actually have a right to do that. And we give them, we are basically giving our sovereignty away or we're attempting to give it away yeah. to that person or to that entity. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with the logic, you know, that simple phrase that someone else doesn't have the, the right to rule over me or you or anyone else. I mean, it's kind of bulletproof. I mean, would, um, would uh, someone on the other side of the argument say, well, the government it rules us with our consent because we participate in a system where we have these elections and we vote for people to represent us so that 
it's not a, a sort of a dictatorship in that way. The ruling <laughs> on our behalf with our consent. Is that a fair point? Yeah, my response to that would be some people, maybe even most people, may consent. And you are correct, actually. The authority does require our consent. And the reason it does is because we have free will. Yeah. And one of the other aspects of human nature is we all have free will. So even when we think we're not making the choice, we, we are making the choice. So authority knows that, you know, authority knows that it needs our consent. So that's why it creates all these machinations and all this complexity to get us to agree. Uh, but it's important to understand that even if 99, even let's say we lived in a world where there were 100 people, and even if 99 of the people agreed to go along with, let's say 98 of the people agreed that one person was the ruler and could do whatever they wanted, and one person didn't agree. It's not a case of majority rules. That's not what determines the morality. That one person is actually correct. You know, they're, they're correct. They're, no one has a right to rule over anyone else. It's just the other 99 are going along with the illusion, right? So that's why we have these conversations, because really the only way to change is I can't force you to think anything. I'm, I'm not trying to get anybody to believe me. That's the point. I'm not trying to force an ideology down anyone's throat. I'm simply going to speak the truth, knowing that it's the truth, to remind you, right? What you do after that is entirely up to you. But I also know the way it works. I know that when more people start to withdraw their support for something that is an illusion and just a mental construct and doesn't actually exist naturally and isn't isn't beneficial, it isn't good. Um, I know that the, I know in, in, intuitively, and even from my own microcosmic experience in my own life, I know that when people start to take back their authority, then only good things can happen. So that's why I do this. That's one of the reasons why I do it. And the other is, you know, a lot of times people use the claim of necessity of like the lesser of two evils argument or the necessity of, of authority because you know people need you know somebody needs to build the roads or. Somebody needs to fill out punishment. Uh, my response to that is very simple. If the ends never justify the means. We've seen this in history many times, that people claim that the ends justify the means. So we need to throw that away because that'll never be right. However, if, the, if we can agree that the end goal is noble, if we can agree that the end goal is right, let's say, let's use something very benign like paving the roads, right? This comes up a lot. Let's agree that paving the roads, is, it's relatively neutral. It's not necessarily, it's not necessary, but it can be beneficial. You know, it's neither good nor evil. Um, so we can agree that generally it's, it's, it can be beneficial. So if that's the end goal, and if that's a worthy goal, because people can then transport themselves better, then there is a voluntary moral way to, to solve that problem. It can be done through 100% voluntarism. It can be done without any violence or coercion. It can be done through people voluntarily offering up their assistance, knowing that in doing so, they will receive, you know, they know they'll get a benefit from it. They know it's the right thing to do. Um, they, they don't need to be told what to do. Uh, they may have a certain skill set. We live in a world with, with you know, many billion, you know, many billions of people. There's always going to be enough people to solve any given problem. You know, in terms of technology or, or, or designing, you know, what we can call um, societal design. Um, so my answer is very simple. You know, it's a wrong, it's a fallacy argument. It's a wrong argument to claim that we need government or authority to solve these problems because we can solve them ourselves. Right through volunteers, and they'll be solved through necessity as well. Because I remember a story years ago. I want to say maybe ten years ago, there was some country village somewhere out in the sticks, and they couldn't get broadband internet mm -hmm. connection, and the state wasn't willing to do it. It was going to be 
uh, too expensive, I guess. There was so few houses in this village that the uh, network operator wouldn't provide, you know, wasn't willing to spend the cost of the infrastructure to service a small group of houses, say. I'm kind of making this up. But they, so they did it themselves. They got together, yeah. the community got together, and they started laying the cables themselves and digging the trenches and filling them back in. Because they had to. Mm-hmm. Like, the necessity is the mother of invention. I'll keep, I'll keep dropping them in. Oh, you're on fire tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's sort of, sort of one of the question marks in my head when it comes to the, this sort of new way of organising ourselves is, is how scalable it is. Will it, will it necessitate a completely different landscape, a redrawing of boundaries, uh, doing away with national boundaries, that sort of thing? Do you think it's, you know, would the, would the world be unrecognisable in, in those sort of terms, do you think? If it was implemented at scale? It, can it be implemented at scale? It's the first question. Yeah, this is a really great question, and it is somewhat, uh, like, there, it's, we can't really know the answer until it plays out. I can make a, an educated guess that I think, yes, in the long view, society will evolve in ways that will become almost indistinguishable, not not indistinguishable almost unrecognizable or very difficult to even imagine from our current perspective the further in the future we go. Assuming that we go down this path of embracing true principles, then things will start to change radically. Um, and, you know, as far as scale, I mean, we have to just accept the fact that we've, we've gotten ourselves in this current situation through, through our own consent, through we talked about, through going along with certain belief systems that are uh, inherently wrong, but we've along with them for convenience or for whatever reason um so we've gotten ourselves in the mess it's like it's like you find yourself in the swamp you're going to have to get out of the swamp so humanity is going to have to get out of the swamp that we've essentially co-created for ourselves so it's probably going to be painful it's almost certainly going to be painful even to a degree that we can't necessarily fully comprehend as we transition as we start to evolve it doesn't necessarily mean that that the whole world's going to burn down or it has to be armageddon or, or mass suffering on that on that level although I guess that is one scenario. Um, but it could also just be a painful time, uh, but also a time of, of hope where we start to implement things you know, one by one and we figure out how to solve problems at scale. I think the key, the key is that as we as human beings, we have this amazing ability to tap into the infinite because we are an aspect of creation itself. We are an aspect of the infinite. We have act- people have called it infinite intelligence. Um, the higher self, um, the higher will, the will of God, um, intuition, imagination. People have often thought of imagination as being able to tap into a much greater field of knowledge and, and vision that we as individuals have. So if we can tap, start to tap into that, maybe we'll come up with solutions that will make paving roads seem like like old, you know, like ancient stuff, like archaic and ridiculous. And we will evolve technologies that will be so far beyond what we can even imagine that yes, and maybe that, that may include, uh, I'm just speculating, of course, uh, Earth, human beings being able to populate other worlds other than just planet Earth, um, you know, as it were, or any other number of scenarios. So it's really hard to know, but ultimately, when you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, then creation starts to present you with solutions that you may not have even thought of. Sorry. No, I was just going to ask something just came into my mind, you know, about the difference between perhaps you know, this kind of natural law system and the system that we live in now. And you mentioned psychopaths um, 
just before. And I suppose, you know, what was coming into my mind was whether it would be easier to take advantage of a, the society as it is now with its structures, you know, and sort of ladder to kind of where you want to go if you, you know, have that kind of mindset. Or would it be more difficult to take advantage um, of a natural law society because it would be seen more easily? So, you know, if you think of a like the bell curve, you know, uh, distribution curve, um, and psychopaths would occupy, you know, one end of that, so the thin wedge, essentially. So, uh, yeah, I just wonder, you know, whether the system now or a natural law system would be uh, better or worse for those kinds of people, I guess. Well, I'm not sure. I think, uh, you know, to get into the mind of a true psychopath who does not, who completely lack, you know, someone who is born a psychopath lacks the ability to feel emotions largely. Mm-hmm. They may feel very basic emotions. Um, it's said the psychopaths don't even feel fear, but, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, maybe there is kind of a darkness in, in that type of existence that we can't really fully understand. And I'm not saying psychopaths don't have a right to exist. So, I want to make it very clear. Um, psychopaths do have a right to exist just like we do. But they, what they do not have a right to do is to run the world on their terms. That's really all I'm saying. So, mm-hmm. yes, there will be a place for that kind of mindset for primary psychopaths, but they will be contained. So if they, if they try to uh, rule the world because they, in their own mind, they think that they can, you know, whatever they want, they can do it, they'll stop at nothing to, to achieve their goals because... Um, they are essentially an intellect, but without the, the heart. So it's like having a, a very powerful mind, like the mentation, and having the will, which is the will to act, but lacking the heart, lacking the, the, uh, the uh, emotional intelligence. Um, so yeah, there'll they'll be a place for them. Um, that's one way I interpreted your question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, uh, exactly. you, you said, um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to get rid of the psychopaths. They, des- they, they have a right to exist. That sort of raises a question well, about um, what your perception is of the right to take a life. I mean, we don't have the death penalty in no. the UK. I know some states have it in the US. It's often it often polls quite high on opinion polls in the UK, doesn't it? I think it's bring often it very close, like fifty mm. fifty. People mm. want to bring back the death penalty. I'm dead set against it. I don't think the state should have the right to take someone's life. Um, do, do, under natural law, is it ever justified to uh, take another life, human life? Yes, it is. And I'll give an example that will be easy to understand. Uh, because I think, like in anything, there are probably some gray areas where the answer may not be so readily obvious just in a quick analysis, but there are also many examples where it will be. So let's start with the ones where it is, where most people, I think, are still not recognizing this, even though it's, it's easy to understand. So if you are walking down the street, actually, let me back up for a second. Let me give the principle first, and then we'll break it down. Um, so when we talk, when I use the term objective morality, really, we're talking about three things, okay? The first aspect of objective morality is you have the ability to, for self-awareness and self-reflection, you can reflect on your own behavior. You're, you're self-responsible. You're sovereign. You're in charge of yourself and your actions at all times, regardless of what they are. The second is don't harm others, don't steal things that don't belong to you, don't do things with other people's property without their consent, right? That's the second aspect. Then the third, of course, is for that to work is we need to be able to defend ourselves. So the third is the self-defense principle, which is if someone or something 
creation tries to harm you, you have every right. And in fact, I would say you have a moral obligation to defend yourself through any means necessary from that violence, from that harm. Um, so I'm going to talk about that third one in this example. So let's say you know, you're walking down the street, the any street, um, and for whatever reason, a common thug, thief, you know, a mugger, whatever you want to call them, a criminal comes along or anyone comes along and very clearly approaches you to cause you harm. It's very obvious. Maybe they're brandishing a weapon. Maybe they are speaking menacingly, whatever. Maybe they're raising their hand, raising a knife. But it's very obvious that they're about to commit an act of violence, right? They're about to break that second rule of morality. When that happens, the minute that happens, violence has already been committed, right? Even the threat to assault, where you don't know what's going to happen, is already violence. Because if, you, if, it, if it plays out, they're going to harm you. Right? So in that scenario, you have every right to defend yourself. It doesn't mean that you have to automatically do whatever you can to take their life. But if in the course of defending yourself, because they are using excessive force, you have no choice but to use an equal or greater amount of force in order to defend yourself, if through the course of that interaction you kill them, then your act of killing them was not murder. It was not an act of violence. It was not wrong. You were justified. You were not, not justified. You were right. You were correct in doing that in that case. Because you had every right to defend yourself, right? You were going to, your life was going to be taken from you, potentially, or your body was going to be assaulted, your property was going to be stolen. Now, if you can defend yourself without killing the other person, that's great. You know, that would, that's great. But if you happen to kill them because you're defending yourself from being assaulted, you did not commit a wrong. And you have every right to do that. And, and no, nothing, no being can come along and claim that you did anything wrong. So that's a very cut and dry scenario uh, where, Taking a life is right because, because it's done in self-defense. You did not start. You didn't start it. You were walking down the street, minding your own business. If, if nothing had happened, you know, there's a streetwise street saying, don't start nothing, there won't be nothing. Right? You Look don't no one starts out. with you, then, yeah. I mean, violence was initiated against you in that scenario. And once violence started, there are no rules. That's why they say there are no rules in war. All bets are off. There are no rules. You know, it's whatever you have to do to defend yourself. Right? Now, we can be reasonable, and like I said, we don't have to target a nuclear bomb at someone who's trying to mug us on the street. You know what I'm talking about, like something out of proportion. But if you happen to kill that person, certainly if they were trying to kill you, uh, to murder you because they were initiating then you had every right to kill them. So that's a very cut and dry case. And, and I mentioned that scenario because even that very simple, easy to understand example is one that most people are failing on to understand and implement. So we, you know, even to much less to go beyond that to talk about cases where, you know, do we have a right to, to um, snuff out the life of someone who has already committed wrongs? And that's a little more complicated. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I would say if there's someone out there who, has already killed many people and is showing no sign of ever stopping, then yes, you know, we have a moral duty to put a stop to that. If that means, you know, ending their life, because we, then so be it. Right. Wow. And that is not murder. You're doing it for the, the, ben well, the benefit sounds horrible putting it that way, but you're doing it for the community at large you, for protection of the community. Would you say, say, well, you're doing it for self-defense. Again, we always yeah. have to put it through the filter of why, you know, the why behind taking a life or any, you know, any kind of force 
always has to be because of self-defense. You know, and again, we have a, we also can you know, defend our children in our communities who may not be able to stand up and defend themselves directly because of their situation. Right. That's that's one of those interesting gray areas. It's the gray areas that interest me, but it's um yeah, he's someone who's committed, say someone who's committed set 10 murders, a serial killer. This is where I struggle a bit. That, you know, whether it's justified to take their life before they commit another crime. I don't know. I'm not sure how... how not that's... necessarily. So... Not necessarily. Because what if they truly... Uh, what if we, you know, through some process, and I'm not saying it would be a court, you know, the way we think of it, but maybe through some process we came to know and understand that this person recognizes what they did was wrong and they have committed to never acting that way again and, and maybe they've done some other thing or agreed to do something else in restitution, in other words, to pay their debt to society you know, that we've agreed upon. Mm. Then in that case, I don't see any reason why we, would, why we would take their life because then they would not have a chance to learn from their mistake, right? They've already agreed to never do that again. So to just take their life just because they killed 10 people but are not showing any sign that they're going to do that again, that's, that just becomes vengeance. That becomes vengeance. That's not true justice in the divine sense. That's, you know, uh, I'm angry because that happened. I'm going to take out that. I'm going to exact, you know, retribution on that person. Um, but that's different than the scenario that someone who has made it clear that they will continue to kill and maybe are, you know, continue to kill over time and have no intention of stopping and that's just you know clear that that's the case they have made no sign of repentance they no, no sign of admitting that they've done anything wrong um, they may even claim that they are doing the right thing so that's a very different scenario yeah they should have a job in the government probably by the sounds of it <laughs> that's, that's one of their number one some of them probably do oh yeah i'm sure <laughs> they do they uh, we love war it's good it's good for business yeah, exactly. It's yeah. good for the FTSE yeah. 100. Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry, the Dow Jones, whatever it is over there. Uh, David, we're rocked up to an hour already, and uh, we haven't talked about your work and uh, your website and everything. I mean, the, sh the links, it's up on the screen, and the links are in the show notes. But, I mean, before we wrap up, do you want to tell us a bit about where people can find you and what you're doing with your website and content creation and whatnot? Yeah, that'd be great. And just before I do that, I want to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I mean, we could have gone on for ages. We, Great. I mean, you know, tax is another issue I wanted to get onto. <laughs> because, again, I mean, I've, I've said it before, but our government has this great trick where when you become an employee, they take your tax out of your wages before you even see it. Mm. And when you, come, yeah. when you become self-employed like me, and once a year you have to write a big fat check and hand that over to these fools who run the country <laughs> it really changes your perspective but so, so so yeah next time we'll talk about tax but go on tell us about your website sure so everything that i do all this you know all this work that i do to share this important knowledge i created my own platform that i call it freedom5.art i created it about a year and a half ago that's the website freedom5.art um, i chose the dot art domain uh synchronistically because I am in the process of becoming more of an artist myself. And I think that when we create media, when we share these important ideas, uh, we're also, in addition to being teachers, we're also artists. And um, actually I wrote, I wrote and published six songs so far as part of my music for freedom. You'll find those also on the website. So 
Um, you can find all of my work and also work of others. You can find uh, the services I offer, um, some of the tools that I provide, like the seven-day mental freedom challenge for people who want to take some of these lessons and try to start incorporating in their own lives. So everything I do, you'll find there. And of course, I'm also on pretty much every social media platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. I use all the uh, all the uh, well, well-known and less well-known platforms so you can find it there as well. Excellent. Sounds good. Well, the links are in the show notes. And yeah. uh, there's a lot of YouTubers, podcasters, content creators who listen to this. And yeah. uh, it's, it's particularly relevant to you, I would feel, you know, when it comes to things like making videos and... Uh, Web design, graphic design, all those stuff, all those jobs that I hate doing <laughs> when I just want to be on the mic. But, you know, um, David might be able to help you. Hit him up. Check the link out in the show notes. Okay, David, we'll sign off now. Um, just stay on the line for us for, for one minute while we, we play ourselves out. And um, okay. the rest of you out in YouTube land, we'll be back in 10 minutes for five, part two. Five minutes. Five minutes. Oh, hell's bells, right? Okay. okay. Right. Take care. Sayonara. See you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs> right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the pancreatic islets of Langerhan. Nice. Did you make that especially? Keeping it fresh, man. <laughs> I'm freshening things up. Fop, 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 fresh. <laughs> That was our chat with David Greenberg, schooling us on natural law, anarchy, and all those unusual concepts that we don't hear about in the UK. Yeah. Very often. I thought that was interesting. And yeah. uh, more to go on. I think so. There's plenty more that we could talk to him about, really, isn't there? Yeah. But we only have an hour, don't we? Only got an hour. Mm. Uh, Sam. Hi, Sam. This is, uh, f- we're coming over five by five on the audio, and we both look beautiful. Thanks. Look be- fucking beautiful, mate. <laughs> What? Are you smashy? <laughs> oh, that's Australian one. I know it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And not, uh, I've been missing you in uh, on Friday night, Sam. Not seen you for a couple of weeks. What's going on? Uh, the old uh, Rise Above. Sam's yeah. normally in there. But, uh, anyway, links in the show notes. Freedomvibe.art that's is the it. website. Yeah. If you want to check out David's stuff, follow up with him. As I said, if you're a content creator, um, I'm sure he could help you with your... Uh, your, your content video, needs. Your content needs, your creation creation thereof. <laughs> yeah, the creating of content needed. Yeah, I would say so. Mm. Right, let's move on. Let's get a show on the road. Some headlines. Let's see what I've got. Always. of the week. Trans woman left sobbing in JFK airport after TSA agent hit her testicles. Her testicles. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I mean, there's nothing worse to be fair, is there? Um, Stop I'm reading a- the comments and talk to me. There's only you here now. I know. I was just wondering uh, who that was. But anyway, um, <laughs> A transgender woman was left in tears at JFK Airport after she claimed a TSA agent, you know what TSA is? It's the... It's something about trans. <laughs> yes. No, it's the uh, it's like the airport security agency. I was TSA'd when we went on our honeymoon. 
Right. You had a uh, 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 you had a fantastic experience with the TSA, didn't you? Uh, yeah, they were fine. Yeah. They didn't do anything to me. No one punched you in the testicles. No, nobody punched me in the test in in my testicles. No, no, it was fine. Uh, yeah, um, she claimed a TSA agent punched her in the testicles while she was going through security. Uh, the unidentified flyer took to social media to vent about the incident, in which she said the agent humiliated her in front of everyone in a series of posts that have since been deleted. Um, uh, this is in quotes. Hi, so a TSA agent at JFK Airport punched me in the genitalia, yelled at me for having a penis, and humiliated me in front of everyone after I told her to please stop. So it's a female. Right, so the well, this is the thing, isn't it? So you're pulled out of the queue, right, or whatever it is, or you go through the thing and it goes, boop. Fuck's sake, I'm taking like you're practically naked. Sorry, right? it's my testicles. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my fucking brass balls. <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah. Um, it's that fucking metal one they put in. Yeah. But so you get put, you're a woman, you're identifying as a woman. So a woman pats you down, expecting to find lady parts. And then you find a package and they're like, oh my God, what's down there? That's the thing, isn't you it? You think this is what it is? That I she's, think so, yeah. Uh, do you have to request um, a, a matching sex well, I think TSA it, agent, I think, or is it done automatically? I think it's protocol, isn't it? So, you know, when I've been padded down, I've been padded down by a gentleman at the airport. Really? Can you not request a female? No, because that's just creepy. Is it not? Because uh, it's the same with doctors, isn't it? It's like you can request, can you not request a... A male or a I female I think you can doctor. have a chaperone, can't you? <laughs> you can a, sh- request... a shotgun from Destiny 2? Yeah, you can. You can. Your maperone. That is that is a niche <laughs> That's a reference. That's a deep cut. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, no, yeah, you can ask for a chaperone in the doctors. Right. Can I bring my mum? Can I bring my mate Dave <laughs> yeah. to watch to watch it as you feel me up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He'll just sit in the corner. A man, a man, watch. a man had to feel my testicles before my operation. Right, and he found them um, inside me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, yes, uh, blah blah blah. So, uh, so yeah, TSA. Uh, I told her to stop. She captioned a photo of her crying in the airport bathroom, according to a screenshot of the post. Uh, but the embarrassment didn't stop here, according to the woman. The TSA agent followed me into the woman's bathroom and began talking about me to a co-worker while I sobbed in a stall. So she went into a stall and was crying. Hang on a minute. Whoa, this is where it gets a bit fucking dodgy, this. They would have staff toilets. Would they? Yeah, of course they would. In the back. Nice ones. Really? Well, nicer. I don't know about that. Do you think they would use the public toilets? I would assume so, yeah. No. I have, I work in the NHS, and I have nicer toilets in the back. The TSA is like the the bottom of the pile as far as, like, respect and working conditions. Is... They get treated like shit on minimum wage. Do they? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they don't get looked after by their employer. Is that why they're angry? Is that why there's lots of jokes about the TSA being angry? I think so, yeah. Maybe justifiably. Maybe. In a follow-up poll, she said she was left crying for over an hour. <coughs> uh, quote, My balls hurt, still hurt so bad. That's a quote. <laughs> this, is, this is in quotes. Right, okay. Um, she does not want the TSA agent to be fired. 
actually said in a separate post, but wanted her educated and the entirety of the TSA abolished altogether. Oh, right. Okay. So she doesn't want to fire She wants the whole agency abolished. She wants the entire system taken down. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, in response to the woman's post, JFK Airport apologized for the incident. We apologize again for your experience. The airport tweeted in response, according to the Daily Mail. Your comments have been noted and shared. Okay. God, my fucking accents are just not on point, are they, tonight? No. First one, I'm almost I kind of uh, I'm almost as bad as Marina Sirtis. Okay, here's another niche reference. Oh, you love it. Oh. No. Why have we no audio? <gasps> got to turn it up. Have we got to turn it up? Oh, f- it is down. Oh my god, well spotted. I was going to start fucking with OBS. Sorry, incoming. Hello, Diane. I understand you're an empath. <laughs> I'm a very sensitive man myself. I'm doing a thesis on interspecies mating rituals. Would you care to join me in some empirical research? <laughs> Quality. What a great show. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was that from the third season of Picard? <laughs> it's TNG, baby. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's move on. I've, uh, I wasn't expecting to play that, and I'm a bit out of sorts, but let's go to the next headline. Man accidentally buys 60 pairs of reading glasses after misreading the order. <laughs> this is I'm my- a blind man. This was uh, my brother did this. Now, what? Explain. He bought 60 pairs of reading glasses. Give over. Yeah. How? Just ordered them online. He misread the advert. Seriously? No. No. I had you, though, didn't I? No. All right. Well, do you know what I think? I think I've spotted another native ad. Oh, it's spec savers, isn't it? Spec savers. A dad has gone viral on Twitter after accidentally ordering 60 pairs of reading glasses rather than the one pair he intended, with spec savers even wading in to give their hot take on the situation. First alarm bell. Radio personality Chris Arnold was left in stitches after his dad opened up his package and was left wondering why it was so bulky. The photo showed 61-year-old Tom Arnold looking bewildered as he had misread the quantity of his order leaving him with a lot more glasses. Um, Can I just say that you're ruining mainstream media for me? It's a game, man. I know. It's a game. Um, The tweet read, My dad has accidentally bought 60 pairs of reading glasses off the internet after misreading the quantity of his order. Speaking about the mishap, Chris said, I just found it hilarious. He said he thought the packaging was excessive, then he opened it up and the box was full. He seemed confused as to what happened. We looked at the order and he'd ordered 12 packs instead of one, as they were for him and my mum plus spares. The order came to over £100, but he's managed to get a refund. He describes the incident as very funny indeed, saying it cheered him up and his family. Specsavers immediately waded into the comments, writing, Do we even need to say it? Should have gone to Specsavers. That's their tagline. It is, isn't it? The culprit tagline. Uh, Chris Jolt, uh, in reply to the tweet, at this point, guys, I don't think you do. Yes. Are you interested in buying 59 pairs of reading glasses off my dad? 
Spetsavers hilariously replied, if you can't shift them, you might want to consider adding an extra 118 eyes to your dad's face. I mean, that's a wicked joke, isn't it? Great joke. Yeah. Now, uh, this requires deconstruction. So, uh, here's Chris's Twitter profile, as already highlighted. Uh, Chris Arnold, radio, TV, and podcast presenter, producer, disc jockey, uh, found at BBC Upload and uh, another BBC uh, Twitter account. So he's a media personality. Okay, first alarm bell. <laughs> okay. Um, this is the tweet that Chris garnered the attention from. My dad has accidentally bought 60 pairs of reading glasses off the internet after misreading the quantity of his order. Mm. No hashtag Spetsavers, no at Spetsavers mentioned. Uh, what do you think of the photo? I mean, composition is wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know, I can only see five pairs of glasses. Right. And several boxes in the background. To me, it looks totally staged. Totally. Staged photo. Totally. They've got the open box there mm-hmm. displaying the glasses. His dad's there with his phone and doing a little, putting his finger to his lips. Mm, what mm. have I done here? Mm. It's a stage photo. But he might have just been, oh, I've, I've ordered 60 pairs of glasses. Oh, quick, let me get my phone out right now. Exactly, yeah. No, nonsense. That's a stage photo. Okay. Uh, I've got the timestamp of the original tweet. 6.17 p.m. on March the 26th. Mm-hmm. That's a Sunday. 35,000 likes. Yeah. So, 6.17 p.m. on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Here's Spetsavers' reply. 9.46 p.m. on the Sunday. So, they must, op- they must have a 24-hour social media manager who's just looking for pictures. Of Spetsavers. There was no hashtags or at Spetsavers. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> but he, seemed, he managed to find it. Did, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's a, a native ad for Spetsavers. It is, you're right. A publicity stunt, you would call it. Yeah, publicity stunt. And it worked. They were on Jeremy Vine being interviewed. They were on all sorts of mainstream TV and radio outlets across the country. Wow. The following day. Suckers. Yeah. We won't get sucked into free adverts for Spetsavers on here, will we? Unless you want to pay us. No. No. I don't need glasses yet. Maybe Ben Ben could do a spec savers native he, ad. He could do a spot. Could we, could we rustle one up? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, should we see what we can do? See if uh, spec savers miraculously find our episode three hours later where we man it, where we mentioned them. It's yeah. a hilarious jape. <laughs> Some Tom Foolery. Well, we, we're good at that. <laughs> I'm a blind man. Okay, let's move on. Next headline. Oh, it's another. Wow. Man brought back from the dead reveals what he experienced when he died. What did he experience? What would you be your guess? The white thing. Everyone sees the white steps. <laughs> the white light. You see the white light, yeah. The tunnel. Yeah. Oh, you're disappointed. Yeah. There is no light to go towards when oh. you die. Oh. But you do enter a spirit realm to watch your body deteriorate, a former dead man has claimed. 
when we're dead, man. What the Farage? Uh, but fear not. Kevin Hill has said his own experience of dying and coming back to life was quite peaceful. The 55-year-old's heart stopped in hospital while he was being treated for alciphylaxis, a serious, uncommon disease in which calcium accumulates in small blood vessels on the fat and skin tissues. Kevin, a writer from Derby, said, I wasn't looking down at my body, but I was separate from my body. It was like I was in the spirit realm. I was conscious of what was going on, but I had so much peace. I knew I was bleeding. I knew it was serious. The staff kept coming in and out to stop the bleeding. Kevin says his dead skin, which was caused by blistering, started eating away at his live skin, leaving him in constant and excruciating pain. Against all the odds, he made a full recovery and was called the Miracle Man by doctors. Kevin described watching the medics try to save him from the sidelines. It's a proper full-on NDE, this. Has he watched, uh, what's it called, Doctor Strange? And the Multiverse of Mayhem. Yeah. What's it called? The Astral Self, is it something? The yeah. Astral Plane. <laughs> it's your soul. Yeah. Your astral light. Being. Your light being. Yeah. I don't know. Then I just went to sleep, and I woke up alive, and the bleeding had stopped. <laughs> I knew it wasn't my time to die. The situation has made me refocus on my priorities. When I came out of hospital, my family atmosphere changed dramatically. I've become more resilient. I know I can bounce back. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. Yeah, you hear these weird, story, weird stories of people, um, like, uh, dying on the operating table and then being able to recall conversations that the uh, EMTs were having while they were working on it, working on the person. Yeah, that might be just because the anaesthetic <coughs> was wearing off. Well, they're dead. They're clinically dead. <laughs> From what I heard, it's like... Yeah, but if you're clinically dead, that doesn't mean that your consciousness is dead, does it? Brain dead? Yeah. Is it, does it not? No. Yeah. It lives on after your brain dead? Of course it does. Well, I think so, but most people don't. Yeah, I think but, that once brain activity stops, that's it. Well, that's, that's what I mean. Off the life support if you die, yeah, but you're clinically dead if your heart stops. Oh, I don't know. It depends on this on the experiment. I think it's brain dead. We've had people who were brain dead and oh, come back. Right. Okay. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, you've not come back from being brain dead yet, have you? No, I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah. Balenciaga. Based Sigma Chad. Oh. That's a base Sigma t- Chad joke, that. Uh, get Balenciaga's super destroyed denim look for $5,600. Is it just like a pair, like some seams? Oh, obviously got a picture to accompany this. The look compromises uh, black Japanese denim essentials that have been treated to a heavily destroyed and dirty <laughs> effect, albeit slightly less wrecked than what came in the show, the fashion show. The jacket is dirtier than the trousers. So we've got to see a picture, haven't we? There you go. That's the front. Oh, what are we waiting for? That's the back. <laughs> Looks like I run over him with the lawnmower today. It's not, it's not, bad. It's not bad for the best part of six grand, is it? I mean, we, sp- have we, sp- we have spoken about the Balenciaga uh, con, haven't we? That it was, it was apparently it was set up as a joke. No, to uh, to, to see to, to to get to see whether they could get celebrities to wear these ridiculous <laughs> clothes. Basically, well, yeah, it seems to have worked. Mm. 
Yeah, the jacket is dirtier than the trousers, sporting a rear that has been slashed within an inch of its inanimate life. The pockets have also been cut. I mean, where do you keep your chip? You don't need change anymore, do you? Well, well. Just scan your microchip. Just start chipping you out in your wrist all day, won't it? Yeah, then it'll be fine. But two more pockets can be found intact, alongside seven Balenciaga engraved flex buttons. As for the jeans, they are cleaner, but still completely destroyed. (laughs) Holes on the front and deep rips on the back are just the start, as even Balenciaga's inlaid branding on the rear is given the messy treatment. Uh, Per Balenciaga's price increase as of late, these items are not cheap. The pants are $2,500, and the jacket is $3,150. Not that bad, is it? Amazing, isn't it? I don't know... um... I think you'd have to be to spend six grand on that. Yeah. Or just have more money than sense, I guess. That's another one. Yeah. I mean, even if I had more money than sense, I think I would buy clothes that were together. Right. Together? What do you mean? Not ripped apart. Oh, right. Yes. Intact. Mm. Not destroyed. Yeah. Purposefully destroyed. When they say it's dirty... Is like, it real dirt? <laughs> is it like covered in mud or is it just like... Do you remember that? Worn. What was it, Primark or Greg's? They did that T-shirt. Oh, it was Heinz with the tomato sauce, tomato soup stain on it. Really? Yeah, printed on. Tomato oh, soup it's printed stain. on. Yeah, so like the dirt in those oh. is, could be printed on. I don't know. Right, okay. I mean, I don't know. What are you going to do? You might be caught between the devil and a rock in a hard place. Well, the thing is, what you do, you're caught between the devil and a rock in a hard place. And you just got to wear what you what's available. Yeah. Um, exactly. Necessity is the mother of invention, after all. Is it? Yeah. Right. Cool. Shall we move on? It's moving on. <laughs> Housekeeping. What's going on? Housekeeping. a value for value podcast if you find this podcast valuable please consider it as a value there's a myriad of ways of doing this my favorite way as ever is word of mouth sharing the shit out of the podcast or the live stream however you uh, classify it wow. whether it's in uh, facebook groups uh, discord servers element servers sharing the newsletter um telegram Mm. Share some links about and help us grow, get more support, gives us more um, clout then for getting guests on and what have you. Exactly. Um, Come and interact with us on the Element server. Even Ben's on there now talking to people and posting things. Really? Every day. Does does he even know what he's doing? They know what they're doing, Leia. Yeah, well, either that he gets his daughter to do it, his wife. Um, Post videos there, um, news articles. Um, <coughs> stop being an eavesdropper and become a producer of the podcast. Yeah, and help us. It's crowd produced this podcast. Yeah. Whether it's uh, sending us uh, funny news articles for this part of the show or guest suggestions, we've got a thread for that there, or uh, you know videos that we can pull clips from. Um, that all helps produce the content. You can also uh, become a producer by sending some artwork. We have a new show artwork each episode and we like getting submissions from you if you join the element server or if you signed up to the newsletter you get a preview of who's coming on in the following week or the following month and then you can come up with some artwork if you're of that 
You know, the talents with the gimp. There was a lot of fucking around, weren't there? <laughs> with that gimp. <laughs> this is uh, my show artwork for this week. 275. David Greenberg. You think? Um, I mean, it's good. It's a solid effort. <laughs> oh, my God. Happy birthday, you giant mistake. Now- I'm just thinking of those uh, crystals. Um, crystals, what the fuck? What are they from? They're from like a, a 90s computer game. I'm trying to remember what you had to, what which one it was. It wasn't Sonic or... Bejeweled? <laughs> yeah, maybe. You had to collect them. They're uh, the platonic solids. Yeah, the crystals. That's why they're there. So, you know, occult, natural law, psychodrometry. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was getting at, crystals. So, um, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Ba- basically, it's fine, yeah. Basically. Did you well, make that on the, in the car on the way down to uh, the stone circles? Uh, no, I did the YouTube thumbnail on the car in the way. On the way to right, the okay. Okay. Mm. Um, are you going to show us the YouTube one, or is it just that one? You saw it in the part one. All right, okay, spoiler alert. Uh, leave I us can a... show you if you want. No, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Leave us a review. Um, smash the like button. Uh, subscribe. Uh, five stars on Spotify. Um, and if you let us know about the review, because not all of them get picked up by things that we look at, we'll read it out for you. Yeah, or just uh, send us messages if you want. Yeah. You know, we like uh, highlighting comments and oh, Insta yes. messages and stuff. Or you can just always email us at thearmiesinquisition at gmail.com. But the Element server is the hub where uh, sort of where the community is now since we're not allowed a Discord server anymore. Exactly. We've moved on to there and that's sort of the, the hub where it's easiest to send us stuff or get hold of us. Or... Mm. But yeah, we like interaction and uh, getting uh, intel from you lot out there whether it be for guests or news articles and whatnot. All helps. Uh, buy some merch. You could buy yourself a literally a communist hoodie like this. Oh, yeah, very nice. Um, it's got a little bit of ice and sugar stuck in the, the drawstrings from some Cinnabons that my wife made mm, about nice. a month ago. Yeah, you get the hoodies, you get the T-shirts, uh, various shapes, sizes, colours and price points. You know, there's like the basic T-shirt, the premium cotton ones, whatnot. And we've met someone who'd Mugs. bought and worn a T-shirt. This one, actually, the three weeks to flatten the earth. <laughs> and she said it was the best T-shirt she's ever bought in her life, didn't she? Wow. She did. That's high praise. She said it was both warm and cool at the same time when it was needed. Really? So when you're hot, it's cool. And when you're cold, it's warm. Well, you can't ask for more than that. No, you can't. So, yeah, check out the merch uh, at the loot chest. If you sign up to the newsletter, um, you'll get a 10% discount code for the uh, merch store. I enjoyed the newsletter yesterday. Oh, yeah, it came out yesterday. Yeah, you've missed it if you're not subscribed. Next one will come out. It comes out on the first of the month, roughly. So, uh, yeah. Lots I of pe- stuff I in the pe- newsletter. I particularly like the photo that I took of you in, sort of in front of that big stone. All right. It was nice. You had a nice pose. I just caught you at the right moment. It's all natural, like pow. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of like the Freeman's catalogue. Yeah. yeah. Those sight work boots were really popping as well. They were. <laughs> well, my eye was drawn to them. Tan. Mint. <laughs> Mint, Tan Mint condition. Mint condition, yeah, brought them. Broke them in. They weren't walking boots, though. They were sight boots. 
What's the difference? Well, he said sight on them. And they had steel toe caps. Yeah, well, what if one of those big stones landed on my feet, toppled <laughs> over? I'd be glad it steel toe caps then, wouldn't I? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure you would be when you were dead, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's only one other thing. Shh, really. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there's only uh, one other thing, isn't there, that you could do? You could always... Toss us a coin. Toss a coin to your Absolutely. Do it for the lads. 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 You know, uh, we like donations. We're uh, crowdfunded, crowd-supported, value for value. If you get some value from this podcast and you want to support us monetarily, put a number on that value, whether it's a a pound a show, two pound a show. Three thousand pounds a show. Eight million quid a show. (laughs) There's a PayPal link. In the show notes or on the yeah. website or in wherever it is. And uh, you can give us a donation and that's how we uh, operate. We don't put anything behind paywalls or uh, Patreon special edition bells and whistles, secret stash and all this bullshit. Uh, <laughs> it's all out there for free. We just ask you if you're in the position to to reach within your torn Balencia pockets <laughs> and toss a coin in our general direction, not too yeah. hard. No, place it. I like it when it's a little soft. Ooh. <laughs> Moist. Yeah. Moist. Only you fuckers can save Plotland. And, and keep... keep the shit show going. Yeah. Right, well, I think it's time. What the farage? I think it's time to big up them mandems, would you not suggest? I would say so. It's time to big up the mandems, yo. Let's uh, thank the producers for episode 275. Let's see who we got. Oh, this just gets me here, this song. Oh, this week's producers, Richard Morris, Elias Syed, Rona Kesson, Ben Limmer, and Matthew Chin. Thank you. They're so amazing. They are. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love and... Literally. The best mate. Congratulations on becoming a doctor of thugonomics. The dwarfs, the currants, the great, the doctor of thugonomics. Dwarfs, dwarfs, feeding. Communist. The base sigma chad. The The baby penis in her asshole. The dime bar. The number level. The big on the bus. The big chungus. The cripple and the mother. From hell, literally. The best mate. Are you retarded? I don't get it, never will. Yeah, thanks for your support for another week. It means the world to us. If you can support us monetarily, it's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Yeah. Gosh, I'm a bit... uh... Uh, (laughs) Some vocals in the back there. Is that you? Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Doing channeling my uh, oh, who's that? That band, Enigma. <laughs> Do you remember Enigma? No. Um, are you th- the return to innocence. Uh, oh, I kind. I think I might know what you're talking about, but ninety two, ninety three. Right. Oh, it's maybe. Oh, you're dusting something off there. But I can't quite grab it. That's the way I'm sat, I think. Willy 
G. <clears throat> Night, all. Night, Sam. You going, Sam? Right. See, Apocalypse, Matt Apocalypse. I remember. He remembers Enigma, The Return to Innocence. It was on every compilation album from the early nineties. Right. Every top forty. You know, that's what I call Enigma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I call cultural appropriation. God, there was a lot of fucking around with that gimp. Uh, Shall we move on? Moving on. We'll see a flying priest. Yeah, I mean, this was teased in the chat. So, yes. Stand by. What the fuck? So, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is from Brazil. I was going to say, is it Brazil? Yeah, it happened this week. There's a priest on stage giving his uh, his sermon or whatever. And then out of nowhere, this woman rocks up behind him full pelt and just shoves him in the back, flying off the stage. And then it looked like she followed him. She followed him down to finish him off. What? Why did she, why did she do it? Well, there's no, no reason. Okay. No reason. Do you want to see it in uh, super slow mo? Yes. I mean, it's right in the back, right in the small of the back. I should it? say the the priest is fine. Oh, uh, good. a few cuts and bruises. Um, I mean, you know, mm. God, isn't it? Yeah. Never the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, let's um, enhance, rotate, magnify. <laughs> yes. Here she comes. Priests in the background, head in hands. Oh, nobody's get, none of them get up though, did he? No. Do you think maybe his, his flappy gown helped? It like, it's like a flying squirrel. That's what, that's what I thought. I thought maybe he had some... He got some... <laughs> <laughs> like a parachute. Some resistance, wasn't there? Here he comes. Bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I'm guessing she's maybe not well. Maybe. 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 Might be some kind of... I assume he was Catholic. Get away from me, Satan. Yeah. Away, Satan. That was a big church. Like a stadium. Was it an Easter thing? Oh, good shout. It, might be. It's Good Friday next week, isn't it? Yeah, but they love it, don't they? They love it. This time of year, old Christians... Yeah, there'll be the big build-up. Massive holiday. Oh, it's Stations of the Cross, isn't it, in the build-up? Mm. Do you remember that? Oh, God. It's gone forever, didn't it? One, one a... How long is it going to take to crucify this guy, man? I can't remember how many stations are there. The 12. 12. Obviously. 12, come on. <laughs> it's either 12 or 7, isn't it? It's 12, 12, Zodiac. So it'll be 12. Um, so Oh, so it'll start 12 days before. Mm. Uh, so mid... Because my mum's been going every day. It's like they do Shit, one station in a day, don't they? And then right. they do, and then on Good Friday they do all the stations. Yeah, that's the one you want to go to. Yeah, the three hour, <laughs> the three hour mid afternoon uh, tour of the church. Uh, do you know what um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's famous uh, favorite Christian holiday is? Has to be Easter, baby. <laughs> la, 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 la. Almost, <laughs> almost got it there, didn't you? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, let's move on. Oh, do we want to do this Biden thing? 
Um, what time is it? Well, we need to say thank you to Slicko as well. Wow, what's happened? What's he done? Um, he was just he was just want, he, he was a bit sad that he didn't get a, a producer credit because oh. of his constant <laughs> posting of articles in the uh, Element server. Right. Sorry, was that an oversight on my point? My well, part. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I mean, you know, it's the, I'm sure there's some nuance around. You know, who's named as the producer? I assumed it was whether your news article was used in the podcast, not just putting them on the server. That's generally how I operate it. Yeah. Obviously, if you, if it's a donation, then that's your top of the list. Yes. You'll, you'll definitely get a mention. If you have donated and I haven't given you a producer credit, then please let me know because that would be a travesty of natural law. It would be. <laughs> it would have to be rectified. Well, maybe he's have to do a make good. Is there a, I don't want to, you know, maybe this is a discussion for off mic, but whether there's another title we could be bestowing upon people. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, we have to think about that. Yeah, like, what's it called? Best Boy? Best Boy? The Best Boy, yeah. That's like, a, you know, producer produces films, but there is a... Oh, right, it's a lighting guy, isn't it? The Best Boy? Lion guy? Lighting. I don't know. It's an electrician, isn't it? The Best Boy on yeah, the film set. I think so. Right. Okay. Yeah. We'll just, I think we'll, he's, he's not an electrician. We'll bring it up at the next board meeting. Okay. <laughs> that right. That's not going to happen. Uh, I think we've got time, but very quickly, did you see um, there was a terrible skill shooting this week? In uh, Was it Nashville? I've, se- I've seen something along the lines of another skill shooting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, three kids and three uh, adults, I believe, have been uh, killed. And I only raise this uh, because of the Fox News live broadcast where they cut to... They were told that the president was going to make his first address. Oh, no. Have you seen it? No. Right, so Fox News cut to the White House uh, being told that this will be President Biden's first address after the awareness of this incident. And here it is. So uh, at the, we've got Fox News and the breaking news banner at the bottom. Soon, Nashville police update on shooting. And then Fox News alert, we're going live to the White House to hear from the president. My name is Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm Dr. Joe Biden's husband. And I ate Jenny's ice cream, chocolate chip. I came down because I heard there was chocolate chip ice cream. By the way, I have a whole refrigerator full upstairs. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. God. Ben, how are you, pal? One of the best guys in the United States Congress, Ben Cardin. It's, the mood's a bit off, isn't it? <laughs> is it's, it going to be a mood switch? Is it like, you remember when... Commander Data. When, uh, what's his face, was pulled out, uh, Bush was pulled out of that elementary school when they came up to him and he went, I do it, I do it. Anyway, shit. <laughs> September 11th. Yeah. Folks, uh, he's doing his shtick. This is, is his shtick about is. his chocolate ice cream. Yeah. Oh, God. It's a delight to have you all here. And who are those good-looking kids back there? Oh, no. It's all the hits. <laughs> those good-looking kids. Yeah. Not the ones that have just been murdered in cold blood. No. But um, Fox, the Fox anchors, it cuts back to them in the studio, audio only. There's the confusion after this, because we're only like, what, 30 seconds into the clip. Do your kids, all four of them? Well, stand up, guys. 
John, we'll jump back in here. Um, yeah. Uh, considering um, the moment. Um, we were, we were told that the shooting yeah. that just happened uh, left three children dead, uh, three adults dead, shooters dead, and we were told he would be addressing this F off the top. Yeah, it's uh, rather surprising. I thought that a somber President Biden would have come to the podium here and addressed the school shooting. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. I don't. I think it's just a communication breakdown. I think it's a, a press. Probably. Press office, director of communications wants firing. They've done something wrong, haven't they? They fucked up. Yeah. Basically. After that, it's gone into his ear about school shooting. <laughs> he's gone into his head. And then he's thought, make jokes about children. I need to be shooting straight to the children. <laughs> I need to be incorporating the children into my shtick. The fucking guy wears diapers. I wear diapers. Hey, he doesn't don't knock what, it till you tried it. He doesn't know what day it is. It's the people around him yeah. who, uh, I would say, because, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe the whole thing's a psyop. Like the whole... Like veganism. Veganism's a psyop. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, last story. But it's a, a, a big one. A long one. Oh. I've got a long one for you. <laughs> oh, I did a long one. People like Bush. <laughs> um, it's the led by donkeys expose of MPs' second jobs. Oh, this one. Yeah. Second, third, and fourth jobs. Yeah. Which isn't illegal. No. And there's no sort of like cap on what they can earn. How many jobs? You can have 10 jobs if you want while you're an MP and earn 20 billion pounds a year. Yeah, as long as you do Fine. your job. As long as you do your job. That's, that's sort of, I guess I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Mind you, I want to get rid of them all, don't I? So, yeah, maybe get rid of them all. And then they can just have their jobs. Yeah. But um, um, there was a Led by Donkeys expose this week with uh, Anthony, or is it Adrian Barnett? I think it's Anthony Barnett. He often does pieces for Dispatches Channel 4. Right. And uh, with in conjunction with uh, Led by Donkeys, they, they produced this sting operation where they were pausing as a South Korean company and then approaching Conservative MPs mm. um, with the offer, you know, preliminary discussions for having a little non-exec board director consulting job for us mm-hmm. on the side uh, with much hilarity. And uh, I've just got a couple of clips because I think they, they've got about five Tory MPs. Fucking uh, Gavin Williamson, who's he used to be chief whip, amazingly. Chief Whip. Cheese, chief Whip. Yeah. And he had a, he was famous for having a tarantula in his office. And uh, I, th- I believe that may have been used to intimidate other MPs, part of his persona. You know, I'm a tarantula keeper. I'm a cold-blooded chief whip. But he was unbearable to listen to. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it kind of reminded me of this. He just kept talking in one long, incredibly unbroken sentence moving from topic to topic so that no one had a chance to interrupt it was really quite hypnotic <laughs> i couldn't get through it but there was no sort of uh, gavin williamson was one of the boring ones um we'll dismiss him okay matt hancock hat mancock yeah he was cheap wasn't he no no i'll get mixed Nothing. up 10 grand wasn't it uh i've got the first clip here well, this is the bit that everyone missed. Well, the analysis I've seen 
that has missed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before they started talking about numbers and the job and the role and whatnot, we were talking about um, lockdown briefly. So I've got this clip. Talk turns to the pandemic. And we even had curfews. Yes, yes. We had a curfew for a while. It didn't work. Well, so these... these... Straight up, it didn't work. No. It's nice to hear it from the horse's mouth. Boundary issues, as we called them. Let's go back. Talk turns to the pandemic. And we even had curfews. Yes, yes. We had a curfew for a while. It didn't work. Well, so these these boundary issues, as we called them, uh-huh. was one of the biggest problems that we... Uh, the complications, because when you bring in rules like that at relatively short notice, of course there were all sorts of complicated rules. There was one day when the Home Secretary was on the radio and asked, OK, so if you can socialise with somebody else in, a, in your garden, but you don't, you've got to go through the house to get to the garden, uh, are you allowed to go to the loo? I mean, and, you know, uh, uh, the answer in law was yes, but you weren't allowed to, quote, linger. Well, what does it mean to linger in the loo? Well, I mean, it, so, we, so all these, these sort of boundary issues did become a massive point of contention because, you know, uh, they were they were extremely difficult to set because the state is just not, has never had such exactly, uh, exactly. level of intervention in people's lives. Mm, hopefully never to be repeated. So I thought that was eye-opening. Uh, yeah, and then you, you mentioned before, what's Hat Mancock's day rate? So mm. we would like to also talk about arrangement of fees. Because yeah. we want to make sure that we pay the right level for the right person. Yeah. And so we were we were wondering, do you have a daily rate at the moment? I do. I do, yes. It's 10,000 sterling. 10,000 sterling. Okay, pounds. That's a daily rate. I can't believe he can sit there with a straight face. That he thinks he's worth 10 grand a day. Um. Yeah. I know, but he's just, he's been Amazing. suckered again, hasn't he? He's been suckered by the fucking ghostwriter. <laughs> suckered by her or by this thing, you know, setting up this business meeting or whatever. But you could tell as soon as he said 10,000, he's like, are they going to take me seriously? Oh, just say 10 or 5, 10 or 10,000 sterling. He loves the bush. People I... like bush. And he lo- loves the bush. Well, apparently so in meeting rooms. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a self-aggrandizement, isn't it? He obviously, you know, he thinks he's worth 10 grand a day. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's good work if you can get it, isn't it? To work as a non-exec director and earn 10 grand a day. I think there was like... For just bullshitting. Yeah. Because they're just just waffle machines, these guys. Yeah. You know, they don't say anything. Their occupation is to say, talk for 10 minutes without saying anything. Grease... The wheels of power Ooh. with waffle. Horrible. Mm. Um, my favourite one was Stephen Hammond, who's not a well-known MP at all. I'd, I'd never heard of him. I kind of recognise his face. Right. But um, I've got this first clip. This is the opener, and it's where they start moving on to how fees will be arranged. Okay, so... I would like to ask about arrangement of fees because we want to make sure that we're paying the right level to the right person. 
So yeah. Um, how does it work with you? Um, do you have a daily rate at the moment? No, um, I have a I have an annual agreement with the two companies I do work with at the moment. So they pay me. Uh, we agreed a fee for the year, and they pay it like that. And then uh, broadly, if there are any expenses, travel expenses, they pay those on the top. Um, but broadly speaking, they then, um, you know, we know what the commitment is. So, like for the small, um, not exec director of the AIM com- uh, of the AIM healthcare company, it requires attending, I think, a board meeting every other month. So that's six board meetings a year. Uh, it, it requires attending the audit meeting, and a bit like you've said, several ad hoc telephone calls uh, and meetings on Zoom where we have had to discuss. And they pay me a set fee for the year. So it's generally, I prefer rather than a daily rate, unless you want to do a daily rate to agree a set fee for the year on the basis that, you know, that that takes into account the, the six board meetings and then you have me available as a, on an ad hoc basis as and once you, when you do it. But I mean, I, it can be done other way. I have once many years ago had a daily rate um, for one company who wanted to do it that way. Um, I'm not sure that was uh, well. It, it, it works fine, but it's that's the way I'm organised with the other two companies. Yeah, so he's got two other jobs, mm. and he's paid twenty-five grand a year for one and sixty grand for the other, where you just go to board meetings nice. every few months. And this was the approach that this fake South Korean company took. It was we need to do um, six face-to-face board meetings per year. Mm. Um, one probably in South Korea and the others in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then we might need you ad hoc for the odd. If there's an emergency or something where we have to make a decision quick, we need, might need your, your sage wisdom, your fantastic advice. How can we get for. these changes through government? Well, yeah, I mean, they did push about with various of these MPs mm. um, trying to uh, arrange meetings with ministers. And I don't think that... There's certain rules. If you if you're being paid, mm. you can't lobby. I, I don't think you can lobby the government for a com- on behalf of a company you're being paid for. And most of them were quite clear about that. They said they wouldn't do it. <laughs> Just pay me the money for my my bullshit spewing, please. Yeah, exactly. Um. So that's how he's organised on an annual basis. I mean, you can tell she's trying to draw numbers out of him. And he's, he's a bit reticent. So she pushes him for a figure that he wants to be paid. Look to. Okay. Um, we, I mean, I know that it might be hard to talk about fees in general, but we want to make sure that we're paying the right amount. So um, do you have a, like, a, we could talk about daily rates, yearly rates, but I think daily rate might be more reasonable. So do you have a set fee that you have in mind or desire payments? Um. I haven't really given that too much thought at this stage because it's a very preliminary discussion. Um, but I could certainly have a think about that and give you some thoughts over email. Okay. So he won't be drawn. He won't be drawn to names price. Well, you know, he's a, a man with expensive tastes mm-hmm. or refined tastes. So he's got to figure it all out. Yeah. They might say, oh, well, I suppose they've said, haven't they, up front is six. Six meetings and then ad hoc. Yeah, they've said, yeah, and she's asking for a day rate then. Mm. Which makes sense. 
Um, now, because he won't declare a figure himself, he won't put won't put forth his price. No, sir. Um, she offers a payment range that she has in mind. That they to have, get it out of him. They have estimated, yes, which she puts forth in this clip. And see if you can locate the point where Stephen Hammond jizzes in his pants. <laughs> okay. I mean, just to, just an FYI, I have suggested amount of 12 million to 20 million Korean won per day. That's about 8,000 to 15,000 pounds per day. Does that sound a bit about right? Um, yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds, uh... <laughs> there he goes. Reasonable. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, uh, more than, yeah, very definitely. It, my, my rate would be, um... Oh, he's get... just leaking down his leg now. <laughs> he's just got the seventh. Seventh. Oh, emission. Yes. Seminal emission. Yeah. My rate probably would... Would be towards the lower, would have been. Oh, no, he caught himself there. Don't, would have been towards. Don't uh, admit that I'm cheap. <laughs> my rate, my rate would be towards the end, would have been towards the end. <laughs> but now we see I'm worth a lot more now. You're telling me? Towards the lower. <laughs> 12 grand a day, 12 grand a day. <laughs> and I'm trying to calculate it on what my Bullshit. rate is to these other people on a. Uh, on a yeah, about, about a grand a day. Yeah. 25 grand for six more board meetings. Mm. Oh, that's four grand, isn't it? Mm. Crikey! A daily on a daily basis, but um, that would be uh, that would be very acceptable. Something in that range. Yeah, there's more. There's more clips. You can find them on Twitter. Where yeah. uh, after this, where it goes on, but I have to cut it short. <laughs> Why are you looking at the next clip? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stephen Hammond O face. <laughs> yeah. yeah, here it is. I bl- I've blown it up for you. Oh God. Um, yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds, um... Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I got news for you. That means you're gay. Oh. You like that? Yeah, it's disturbing. Oh, again. Um, again. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds, um... Yeah, he's happy with that, isn't he? Uh, yeah, more than happy. He's uh, yeah, struggling to uh, ecstatic. His words <laughs> sounds like that. Yeah. Hi, can I get a fat white piece? I wonder what his day rate is. Jeremy Cunt. Sorry, Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Cunt. <laughs> what do you think he's worth a day? Fuck I bet me. he'd ask for more than that. Yeah. Well, look, he's a it... proper weff shill as well. I think. Theresa May's sort of like 50, 60 grand for doing a speech. I'm sure it's something like that she's been earning. Wow, the Maybot. Does she come on to Dancing Queen still? <laughs> Hi, can I get a flat white, please? Of course. Fucking take that, Hi. Rod, that rod out of your arse, mate. Can I get a flat white, please? <laughs> Hi. Yeah. I need to explain some things to filthy peasants now about money and tax. Here's a cup of coffee. Yeah. It used to be £1.50. Now it's £2.50. And here's why. <laughs> you peasant. That's why you fucking peasant. Because we've been printing money like there's no fucking tomorrow. And guess where it goes? Out into the ether. <laughs> Out into the ether. And so your pension, your savings, 
It's worth shit now. It's going yeah. down every year. Mm. 60 grand for Theresa May. I can't believe that. I think it might be more. I think Bojo has made millions as well, hasn't he? Fucking how long for the days when Theresa May was Prime Minister? <laughs> just boring, just vanilla. Just fuck off and leave me alone. Keep quiet down there in that shit pit you call Westminster. Leave me the fuck alone. Um, Maybe run through a field of barley. <laughs> I run through a field of barley. I may have run through. A field. I may have. Oh my god! I smoke drugs. <laughs> I smoke drugs and run through a field of barley. Oh, I'm a base sigma chad. chad. Yeah, yeah. Alone for those days, man. Just quiet, quiet world of politics. Keep away. Yeah, I agree. Mind you, uh, Rishi's kind of like he's a grey man. Well, I was isn't just he? about to Nothing. say. I was just about to say it's been gone quiet again. He shut the lid on the cess- the cesspit, hasn't he? What do you mean? How? Oh. Not hearing many. I don't remember many scandals for a month. <laughs> I, I don't know. Have you heard anything? What other than the led by donkeys thing? No, because we we know they're all fucking corrupt. It's like I'm not surprised by any of that. I mean, the, it's so widely reported. Or, you know, I've read numerous reports of them uh, going off and doing those speeches, but then uh, knowing that all the other ones have got second jobs. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but that'd be pay- that's, that's a handy thing, isn't it, to pay for your school fees? Your private school fees. Obviously. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't send your... If you're an MP, you don't send your kids to your fucking local comp. Peasant school? <laughs> Did you say peasant school? We learn how to be poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for one of them to get caught sucking their fingers on the bus. You got caught <laughs> sucking your fingers on the bus. That's what I'm waiting for. Hmm... <clears throat> You're yeah. not getting well. You're not going to get into PPE or whatever it's called from the local comp or your constituency comp. You'll have, you'll have them living in the PA de terre in in you mean London. Politics, philosophy, and economics. You mean? Yeah. That degree. Mm. I think that's dying out. I think uh, they're realizing that these these numpty heads <laughs> who go through this system of the PPE degree, they're shit. They're useless. Right. They can't do out. They've no experience. So do we need to get um we'll get Andy Andy on job? Andy Andy. Yeah. I try to think of who who am I I'm thinking of the Labour. He was a health minister for a bit. <coughs> he I think he had to go because he did that no, he sacked Professor Bin. Oh, Professor Bin? Yeah. Not a great plan. Not a great plan. Um, Don't sack Professor Bin. Uh I can't remember his name. But he was like a postman. And then he worked in a union and he'd done loads of stuff and he worked and worked his way up. Uh, not Red Ken. Not Ken Livingston, but same generation. Probably, yeah. Yeah, has he not retired? <clears throat> he went yeah. on to do media, didn't he? He did a lot of things like the daily politics and stuff like that. I can picture his face, but he's gone. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, he was a postman, weren't he? Yeah. And then went into unions, maybe? Yeah. And that was his the route to politics, yeah. probably. Yeah, Blanky. Didn't he run for... Was he local mayor? London mayor? No, I don't think so. He was health minister, I think. Livingston was London mayor. Yeah, for ages. He might run for London mayor. Maybe. I don't know. Could have done. Yeah, uh, Helen wants to know, have you got any of your henge pebbles in the studio yet? No. It's been that crazy this week, that I've... uh, This weekend, particularly, that um, my... 
organite pyramid is still in the, <laughs> is still in the house, and I got a brass wall plaque of uh, Tree of Life. Yeah, I stole some flint from some sacred mounds. Oh no, no, he didn't. Yeah, did. he didn't steal it from the mound. It was on the floor on the way to the mound, wasn't it? Probably. You wouldn't steal anything from the burial from a burial mound. That would uh, be bad. Seriously bad karma. I don't know where it was from. The bit I found was on that farmer's field going up towards West Kennet Long Barrow. There was loads of it. It was all of it shot, wasn't it? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good trip. We don't really have time to talk about it. <laughs> 10 to 11 nearly. Why have you got some more content? No, but it's late now. We need to go. I enjoyed we? it. We could talk, li- talk about it a little bit. So we went to Stonehenge last weekend. Not not just Stonehenge. We accidentally found Silbury Hill, didn't we, as well? We took a wrong turn, didn't we? Going yeah. back to Avebury. And we happened upon a long barrow. Do you know what? Would you like to explain to the listeners what a long barrow is, Philip? It's like um, an artificial <laughs> hill, a long hill that's made with big stones and then covered with mud and it, get, it ends up going, like, being part of the hill. And it's a burial chambers. It's like there's a corridor down the middle. And then you have burial chambers, separate burial chambers on each side. It was incredible. Really. 5,500 years old. Crazy old, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, so they say. (laughs) History is fake and gay and all that. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's 200 Mm. years old, whatever. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. It was my favourite bit. Because you can actually go in and explore it. You weren't roped off. We could explore Avebury, though, couldn't we? Yep. We went to Avebury. Some of those stones were humongous. How they moved those, um, I don't know. It was quite interesting to see how it would have looked originally with the spirals and the lead, you know, kind of led one led into the other and then out again. So Avebury, Silbury Hill and West Kennet Lombarrow are fucking right next to each other. <clears throat> They're about a mile, aren't they? With or a couple of miles square. Within the same square mile, maybe. Yeah, you very close. Mm. So the, it seems that we're all part of the same community structure. Structure. Yeah. The interesting thing about Silbury Hill, um, the largest man-made hill in Europe. In Europe, have you know uh, that we know of? Um, was it? The, it flooded. So whether that was deliberate. Or just a consequence of the digging around the hill. Yeah. Um, so it created like a moat around the hill. Well, I, or it mirrored. Because it would have been white until the grass grew over it. But obviously it was built over hundreds of years. So it might have been that the first layer was built, it got covered in turf or, you know, grass started to grow on it. Uh. Then they built a white layer on top of that and so on and so on. Because the, the ground's really chalky. That's why it's white, yes. is it? Yes, it's just chalk, isn't it, when you dig it dig it up? <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Sorry, Morty. Yeah. Pardon me. Yeah, but then you could see, but then, like, that long barrow was on top of a hill that was kind of... was almost on the same level as the Silbury Hill, would you say? Well, that, yeah, you raised that when you got up to the... You had to climb a hill to get to Long Barrow, and then you could go on top of the Long Barrow, and you looked across Silver Hill, and you seemed to be the same height. Whether mm-hmm. that's accidental or on purpose, accidentally on purpose, definitely maybe. I don't know. Mm. Hard, to, hard to tell, isn't it? You don't know what's in these people's heads when they're doing this wild shit. 
But that is massive, that Silbury Hill. You think of the manpower that would be needed. And, the, like, the stones at Avery, those huge stones, there's one block in the entrance to the Kennet Long Barrow, which is just as big. Yeah. And when you go into the Long Barrow, you look above you, and it's a stone, it, the ceiling's made out of these massive fucking megaliths. Mm. I looked at one, it was well over eight foot wide, that I could see. That was on the roof of this fucking thing. Yeah. It's like... How do you lift that up there? Aims. How do you get it up the hill? Yeah, they're up the from, hill. From 10 mile away, minimum distance was 10k, mm. where they got the Sison stones for West Kennet Lombarrow, and then stick it on the roof. It's like, we're missing something, man. Mm. All right, they didn't have the fucking wheel, <laughs> but they could move these fucking 30-ton massive boulders up a hill and on the roof of a long barrel. Yeah. Bonkers shit, man. Um, so... What's the name of our favourite? Is he Scottish? Used to do Coast to Coast. Neil Oliver. Yeah. Who's your favourite? No, our our favourite Coast to Coast presenter, I was going to say. I've never watched it. I don't know. Yeah, you have. Um, <laughs> you put his speech on during the Soviet Union. Um, well, it's, it's come to prominence on f- from for GB News, hasn't he? Neil yeah. Oliver. Um, and he's done a, he's done a, 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 a podcast series about it and he's done all they're only 30 minutes each ish and he's done one for uh avery stone circle obviously stonehenge but uh kennet long barrow is it that one that yep west kennet long barrow and uh silbury hill i listened to the silbury hill one it was, it was good it was nice nice little listen whilst i had a jog right uh sam makes a good point in the chat take a look at newgrange in ireland I think that's on his list. It will be. And I think that's the same age. I think that might be older, actually. I think the oldest megalithic structures in the British Isles are in Ireland, um, which makes no fucking sense. Well, it's, that's the thing. He was, he said, well, he was saying Orkney was well, yeah. 500 years older than uh, Avebury. Uh, yeah, let's see how, how accurate well, that's is the, this carbon yeah. date within 500 years. Who knows? And you can't date the stones. No, but I think it's I think it's fairly secure that the Irish ones and the Orkney ones are certainly older than what's been found on the mainland. Yeah, that's which weird. Which makes isn't no it? sense. No, it doesn't. Should, does it? People should be coming from the south, and east, up. and up. Yeah, you would imagine, but you know, history is fake and gay. We get half the picture, man. Yeah, exactly. And we sort of interpret things best we can. Mm. So well, it's always it's all we think. Who knows? Who knows what was going on? What's been lost? Mm. From before that period, who knows? But yeah, take a look at Newgrange in Ireland. Lines of Destiny vid on YouTube explains its significance. I'll have to check. I've never heard of that channel. Lines of Destiny. Mm. To look that up. Hey, if he's, uh, if he's in the UK as well, maybe get, him, get talk to him. Uh, explains its significance as well as Stonehenge, Babylonian astrology. We love those guys. Babylonian astrology oh, we guys. Love the Babylonians. Do we? They were shit art, yeah. Astrology. Okay. Soothsaying. Yeah. Could they move massive boulders? Well, yeah, the Babylonians. There you go. One of the earliest civilizations. Fine. Think about the walls of Jericho, for example. Mm. They didn't build the walls of Jericho, but massive, gargantuan walls. Yeah, Babylonians were famous for astronomy and their priestly class. That was their main role, divination. Right. That's why, you know, Belshazzar. When he's feasting and the ghostly hand comes and writes on the wall, 
meanie, meanie, tackle you, Farson. Belshazzar says, whoa, what the fuck does this mean, man? Cha, bro. He gasps for the wise men mm-hmm. to interpret the ghostly writings. Oh, no, a bit of a tangent here. It's 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. I've got my tired eyes. We'll save that story for the book of Daniel. I'm sure we've already talked about it. We have. Many times, probably, on this podcast. <coughs> the writings on the wall story from the book of Daniel, if you want to. I have my own theories about what that story actually means, which I think we've probably covered in, like, episode 50 or something. Yeah, I think so. So, um, yeah. I think it's time to go now. It is. We'll probably do another Stone Circle visit in the summer sometime when we've got a weekend where we're not going to a party. Mm. So we're partied out for April and May, aren't we? We are. Castle Rig Stone Circle would be a good shout. And a big finger somewhere in Penrith, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Dobby's finger or something? Dobby's finger. Kathy's finger. Oh, yes, Harry Potter, yes! I yeah. will help you! There's one there that's set at an angle, apparently. A finger at an angle? Yeah. Meg Peg's. Meg's Peg. Meg's Peg's finger. Who's been pegging you? Meg's Peg. <laughs> Is there any uh, big stones in Somerset? Wagwan fam, you're going to Somerset. I imagine so. All right. Move. It's a bit of a trek, though, wasn't it? Yeah, this is a day. This is a day trip, isn't it? Remember, we can do both in a day. Oh, I don't know if I can do two. I smoke drugs. I smoke drugs. <laughs> we did two in a day the other, the other week. I know. I'm joking. Well, I hope so. Right. Should we sign off? Yeah. Back next week. If we got next week. <laughs> Check out the Element server or subscribe to the newsletter to figure out. Who we have next week. Yeah, let me know. I've completely blanked. I'm sure it'll be good. <laughs> and I'm, next week, uh, next week, next month is uh, moulding. It's going to mould into a banger. I think we're going to have a banger of a month next right. month. I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. That's, uh, that's not a great plan, is it? <coughs> not a great plan. No. Right. Shall we uh, sign off for... Uh... Um. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Smeg. Oh. Oh. leaveable Right. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Yeah, bye. Uh, praise Javelon. And don't forget the Elohim. Okay. I hope you're entertained. Are you not entertained? We love you. I love you. I think it was an epic dub. Epic dub. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna give the rum boy some respect. Respect rum boy. Rum boy. <laughs> respect. <laughs> You're a big chungus. Alright, see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for watching. I can't have children with the whore. can't have children with them. Chest feeding. Oh. Oh, you take it out, I can... ZZ Top. Oh, my God, he's wiped his ass. No. People like Bush. People like Bush. I'm too fat. I'm too stupid. I'm too lazy. I don't get out of bed in the morning. I smoke drugs. 
Give me a moment. Fuck my inner asshole. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. We had a curfew for a while. It didn't work.